0: The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. There's a passage in the canon where the Buddha's son, Rahula, comes to him and asks him how to do breath meditation. And before giving instruction in breath meditation, the Buddha gives a few other instructions as well. And one of them is a meditation, he says, well, you try to make your mind like the four physical elements. For instance, you try to make your mind like Earth. People throw disgusting things on Earth and Earth just doesn't get um, excited, repulsed, or react in any way to that. Uh, Make your mind like water. People use water to wash away disgusting things and the water doesn't get disgusted. Make your mind like wind. Wind blows disgusting things around, but the wind isn't disgusted. Make your mind like fire. Fire burns disgusting things, but the doesn't get disgusted. In the same, he said in the same way, try to make your mind non-reactive to pleasant and unpleasant contacts. In other words, he's giving instructions in equanimity. Then he gives instructions in breath meditation. Breath meditation is Breath meditation is a very proactive process so the way the Buddha describes it, 16 steps and a lot of them are trainings, as he calls them, where you train yourself to breathe in a certain way or to develop certain feelings. you try to breathe in a way that gives rise to pleasure breathe in a way that gives rise to rapture, you may decide that your mind is too excited, so try to breathe in a way that makes it steadier. If you're feeling depressed or low energy, you try to breathe in a way that gladdens your mind, or try to gladden your mind while you're breathing. If you feel your mind is restricted, try to breathe in a way that helps you feel more released, or if the breath itself doesn't help you make you feel more released, there are other exercises you can do. In other words, you're not just sitting there watching the breath willy-nilly, whatever's coming in, going out. You're actually getting engaged in seeing the process of what the Buddha calls fabrication. How you fabricate your sense of the body through the way you breathe, how you fabricate your your mental states through different feelings and perceptions that you hold. Now it's interesting that this would follow on his instructions to equanimity. We think of equanimity as being basically whatever comes up just accept it. Uh, But the Buddha is not saying that. He says you get your mind in a state of equanimity so you can observe then, the process of fabrication. What you're doing, the way you shape your experience. Um, And this is important because he says there are some cases, in in another place, he says there are some cases where the causes of stress or suffering will go away simply if you look on them with equanimity. But there are other cases where he says, uses a technical term, which is to exert a fabrication. In other words, you have to make an effort to understand and dig out that particular cause of suffering and stress. When he says exert fabrication, there are three kinds of fabrication that you can use. For example, bodily fabrication. is basically the way you breathe. It has an impact on your body. If you breathe, if you hyperventilate for about five or six minutes, you'll feel the body being very different from if you breathe calmly and smoothly for three minutes. So the breath, he said, is the primary thing that shapes your sense of the body. Verbal fabrication. This is the way you talk to yourself the things you the topics you bring up in your mind and then the comments that you make on them the technical term here is directed thought and evaluation what kind of things issues do you bring up in your mind and when you bring them up what comments do you make what questions do you ask yourself about things okay this is going to have an impact not only on the way you speak but also on the way you sense things and the way you, uh, way you way, the state of your mind and finally mental fabrication which says is feeling and perception. Feelings, of course, are feelings of pleasure, pain, neither pleasure nor pain. Perception is the way you label things, the notes you give to them, the way you picture something in your mind. Um, you know, if you picture your mother as an ogre, that's going to be one have one impact on your mind. If you think of her as an, a being of infinite love, that will have another impact on your mind when you deal with your mother. So it's these perceptions that you hold in mind that have a huge impact on how, you, how your mind state... Um, it's going to be experienced at any one time. So the Buddha is basically saying sometimes when a cause of suffering comes up, all you have to do is watch it, and it'll go away. Other times it's not going to go away. And He's not saying at that point, well, you just accept the fact that it's there and learn to be accepting. He said, maybe you can change something in the way you breathe. Maybe you can change something in the way you talk to yourself about it. Or Maybe you can change the way you perceive the situation or feel about the situation. So you've got a lot to work with here. Um, this goes against the idea that um, I can't read my notes here. Okay. Um, that all we have to do is learn how to accept things. That meditation is all about radical acceptance, or that the reason we're suffering is because we're neurotic. You know the old definition of neuro- neurosis versus psychosis: psychotic feels believes that two plus two equals five, a neurotic knows that two plus two equals four but hates them for it. <laughs> <laughs> And so if you learn how to accept, okay, two plus two equals four, and it's okay, then you're not going to suffer. Well, the Buddha doesn't say that. Suffering doesn't end simply with accepting. Some things, as I say, will go away if you accept them. Other times, there are deeper causes of suffering in your mind that you've got to dig out. And you've got to learn how to use these processes to dig them out. For example, if you're feeling upset about a particular situation, well, how are you breathing right now? Ask yourself. You know, in the midst of anger, or in the midst of grief, or in the midst of... Lust, just ask yourself, the suffering that I'm causing that I'm experiencing right now is part of that due to the way I breathe, and you try to change the way you breathe. Or is it verbal fabrication? Is it what I'm telling myself about the situation? Why don't I tell myself something different about it? Um, or you can th- think engage in metal fabrication. Again, here the breath comes in in inducing certain feelings in the body and in the mind. So you can again look at the way you breathe in a way that can be more pleasant, see if that affects the situation. And then there are perceptions you hold in mind. How do you perceive this situation? Are you perceiving that you're being attacked by something? you perceive that you're going to lose something that you really need? Um, Do you feel that you're being offended by something? Many times the way we perceive a situation is based on some certain limitations and just the perceptions we bring to it, our ideas of what is possible, what's going on. Um, One of my favorite cartoons in The New Yorker, of these two uh, mafia henchmen carrying a dead body with its feet encased in cement, carrying it down a wharf. You're going to throw it in the river. And one of them is uh, saying, I wish there were another way to make a living. (laughs) (laughs) Your perceptions are often what keeps you entrapped, so learn how to think. (laughs) Think outside the box. Maybe there are other ways of making a living besides being a mafia henchman. And so when anger comes up, you might, like, you might try re-perceiving the situation. The Buddha often says, when you find yourself angry at somebody, think of yourself as someone who's walking across the desert, hot, trembling with thirst and hunger, and you come across a small puddle of water in the footprint of a cow. Now you realize, if you try to scoop up the water... You know, it would make it muddy, and so you have to get down and slurp up the water oh, with your mouth. Now, if someone were to come along and take a picture of you at that point, it would not be very dignified, you <laughs> But you say, "What the hell? I need the water." In the same way, when you're angry at somebody, the idea of looking at their good points may seem insulting. You say, "I don't, you know, that's this is this is beneath me. Why do I have to stoop to looking at their good points when they've been so awful to me?" But then the Buddha says, "Remember, you're not a judge sitting up on a bench." not be going to be affected by your judgment here. You're uh, someone's trembling with thirst, trembling with heat. You need whatever water you can find. So in other words, for the sake of your own goodness, you've got to look at the goodness of others. So, and so even if it may feel undignified that you're, you're slurping up water out of a cow footprint, <laughs> it's much better. <laughs> you say, look, I need this. <laughs> so you hold a different perception in mind, and that, that changes your attitude towards the other person's behavior. Um, the Buddha has a lot for also in the, on the issue of grief, when you are about to lose somebody or already lost somebody. First you have to ask yourself, how am I breathing when this attack of grief comes on? What's my breath like? And can I breathe in a way that's not adding more, more trouble, more suffering? As the Buddha said all too often, we're like a person who's been shot by one arrow, and it's not bad enough, we shoot ourselves with a second arrow. In other words, as a pain comes up, there's something very painful in life that comes up, we turn around and we shoot ourselves with more arrows. He says, "One, a second arrow. That always didn't seem quite right to me. I thought, we're probably shooting ourselves with more arrows. And you think about it. If you've already been shot by an arrow and you're shooting yourself with another arrow, you know, wherever the first arrow is going to be, it's going to get worse even, even before you feel the second arrow. So you can say, well, what, what about the way I'm breathing right now? Is this a second arrow? Can I change the way I breathe? And then you look at how you are talking to yourself about the situation, the sense of loss you're feeling. Um, And all all too often the sense of loss loss comes down to you you really feel oppressed. It doesn't seem fair that you've lost this person. And the Buddha says, the first thing you've got to remember, the first perception you have to hold in mind, is this happens to everybody. There's the story of a woman who's grieving over the loss of her daughter. And the Buddha comes along and he sees her and says, do you realize how many daughters you've buried in the cemetery? You've buried 84,000 over the course of many, many years. So this is not the first time you've lost this person. You've lost a person, lost a daughter. And another case where King Basenity suddenly discovers that his wife has died, the Buddha, (coughs) instead of saying, I'm really really sorry for you, I have my condolences, he says, well, when did you ever expect that you would not lose her? We're all going to lose all the people we know and love all the time. So it's not all that unusual. And in some ways, it, you know, it's a little bracing you know, splash, splash of cold water in your face. But it reminds you that you know, the particulars of you know, my particular loss here, you begin to realize this is everybody's loss. And that takes a lot of the weight off of it. It's not just me suffering right here. It's something that's universal. And that perception really can make a difference in how you're experiencing the loss. Third thing you can start questioning yourself. Where is the conceit in my sense of grief? Now that may sound bizarre, conceit in grief. But conceit you have to remember in the Buddhist description is this feeling of I am. I have a certain identity, and my identity is being fed by my relationship with this person. I'm about to lose that. I feel a lot of loss inside. That's right there is the the issue of where grief becomes really painful. is the sense of the me that's going to lose something. We like to think of grief as being a very altruistic emotion. In other words, we're honoring the other person, and there is an element of honor in the grief. But there comes a point where it has nothing to do with the other person anymore. It's basically your sense of loss, your sense of identity that you build up around it. And it's good to question that. Where is the conceit in here? Where is the sense of me in here? Am I just feeding an unhealthy sense of me? If I am, then I've got to do something about this. I've got to learn how to think in other ways. There's a place where the Buddha says, you know, when you're grieving the loss of somebody, you look at, to whatever extent, that eulogies or, or expressions of grief or lamentation are actually serving a purpose, go ahead and give expression in that way. So then you have to ask yourself, at what point is this becoming self-indulgent? At what point am I neglecting my duties to the people who I still have? Or if it's about the person you're about to lose, if they haven't quite lost the person yet, You ask yourself, well, what can I do to help that person right now? Really think about what the other person needs. I have a student in in the monastery whose father died shortly after he ordained. And it was bad enough that his father was dying, the mother was still alive, she was going to lose her husband, but the grandmother was still alive. Here she was going to lose her son. And the grandmother was weeping and wailing, and he kept thinking, this is not helping my dad at all, having her in the room like this. So you have to ask yourself, to what extent can you help the other person? As the Buddha said, when someone is about to die, your first duty to them is to help them not to worry. So what can you do to help this person not worry about things they're leaving behind or about where they're going? Try to do everything you can to put that person's mind at ease. There's a story in the canon of a man who's dying and his wife comes to him and she says, Look, don't worry about me, okay? Don't worry that I'm going to starve after you go. I know how to take care of myself. (laughs) I can look after myself fine. Don't worry that I'm going to get turned away from the Dharma. In fact, I'm probably going to go to the monastery even more now that you're not around. <laughs> she's pretty frank with him. Um, that's what I like about the Pali and They get really frank. Um, and it so happens that he doesn't die, that he recovers. <laughs> and so he goes to see the Buddha. And the Buddha says, Do you realize how lucky you are you have a wife like that? She had your, your well-being and foremost in mind. This is why she was getting you not to worry about these things. So, if, when you find yourself overwhelmed by grief, first you've got to you know, breathe in a different way, and then start thinking about the situation in a different way, and ask yourself, get, get the me out of the picture here, and what can I actually do, either for the person who's about to go, or if someone has already gone, about the other people who are feeling left behind, what can I do to help them? And as you try to rework your feelings in this particular way, you're going to find there's going to be resistance inside. Think of your mind as a committee. Some of the committee members are going to be on your side, and some people will resist. And this is, this is where this use of fabrication is really important. Because if you don't try to fabricate things in a particular direction, you're not going to see these hidden members of the committee. They're going to be quiet, they're going to be in the background if you don't challenge them. But it's when you challenge them that they come out. And then you can see, it's like building a dam across a river. You don't know how strong the current at the bottom of the river is until you've started to build that dam across. Part of the mind will say, hey, these feelings are natural, these feelings are my real feelings, this is what I really feel. And here the Buddha has you remind yourself that even feelings are fabricated. No matter how natural they seem, it's because it's our habitual way of responding to something. Um, And he says, Given the fact that your feelings are fabricated, there's a habitual element in there, there's a sort of an intentional element in the feeling. To what extent is this actually helpful? And because they are fabricated, I can change them, and they're just as real if they're changed. You you change them through the way you breathe, through the way you think about the issue, and the perceptions that you hold around the issue. That way you you dig up some issues that otherwise would have stayed underground. This is why the act of fabrication is not getting in the way of insight. Sometimes we think insight is going to be just passively observing whatever comes up without any input on our part. And the Buddha says, that doesn't exist. The way our mind interacts with the world, our mind is actually basically active. It's not a passive recipient. It's an active doer that's going out trying to shape experience all the time. And so you want to be able to see that in action. And one of the ways of seeing that in action is when you see that it's going in an unskillful direction, you put a little dam across it say, look, no, we want to make this go in another direction. And then you'll see some of the things that come up, that otherwise, as I said, would have remained hidden. Um, so you might, if you're, you're about to lose somebody, and part of you says, well, here, breathe comfortably while you're sitting here with this person who's dying. You say, wait a minute, I owe it to this person to grieve for them. Your mind might say something like that. And then you say, well, what, wait a minute, what do I owe to this person? What, what are they benefiting from my grief? I mean, part of them may like to think that everybody is just totally devastated by their loss. But we've noticed that you know, there's nobody who's died yet who's actually stopped the world. You know? You know, the world keeps on going. So the question is, what do you owe to that person at the time? Okay, you owe it to that person to be thinking of their needs at that moment while they're going. What can you do for other people around them? And so in just sitting there breathing comfortably, or breathing comfortably while you're in the activity of helping that person, that makes you stronger, so you're actually more of help to this person. It's an expression of compassion. A lot of times that expression of compassion you'll find afterwards to be a lot more helpful, both for you and the other person, than just sitting there indulging in feelings of grief. Um, so this is the way in which using fabrication is not muddying the waters of trying to see what's actually going on, but you're actually using it to dig up unskillful fabrications so you can expose them. Um, there's a the passages in Dogen. Um, which sometimes is called meditation is a matter of thinking, non thinking. I, I asked a Japanese translator one time and asked him if it could also be translated thinking, dethinking, and he said that would actually work. So, what you're doing is you're trying to dethink the old ways you've been thinking, try to replace them with new ones in this way that you, it gives you some more power in shaping your experience. So, this is in addition to equanimity, you find that sometimes you actually need to as the Buddha says, exert a fabrication. Change the way you breathe, change the way you think are thinking about things, the topics you bring up, change the way you perceive and feel things. And this can actually dig out some of the causes of suffering, so you don't have to carry that suffering around. So you've got these choices, either equanimity or fabrication. And as it turns out, equanimity itself is a fabrication. A lot of what passes for Mindfulness practice is basically equanimity practice, the idea that you're just going to sit there and just watch whatever comes up and not react in any way. Mindfulness is actually the ability to keep something in mind. Alertness is watching what's happening, but mindfulness reminds you that there are duties that you have with regard to whatever is coming up. And for instance, if this cause of suffering is coming up, you want to do what you can to abandon it, which can either require watching or, as I said, fabricating things. And watching, with, But as I said, equanimity itself is a fabricated state. Well, you see this in many ways. So the Buddha talks about how equanimity does not become pure until you've reached the fourth jhana. Now, fourth jhana just doesn't happen. You, know. <laughs> you actually have to work at getting there. You have to get the mind concentrated. You have to get it settled down and take it through many stages. Um, but This observation works in both ways. The equanimity itself is fabricated, which means that you have to learn how to be good at equanimity. And secondly, the abric- fa- um, Equanimity is not the goal. We're not trying to just be equanimous at all times, and that's not going to be the end of the matter. Because um, after all, the fourth jhana, jhana—this you've already got pure equanimity and you're not there at nirvana yet. There's a lot more to be done. The Buddha talks about many stages in the, in the process of getting more skilled at equanimity. Uh, first, there's what he calls equanimity coming from multiplicity. In other words, whatever comes up, you determine in your mind that whatever you see or hear or smell, or taste, or touch, or think about, the mind is going to remain steady. Now this is the same kind of equanimity the Buddha was teaching to his son when he was talking about making your mind like earth, or water, fire, or wind. You're determined not to react, just to watch things coming and going. Now the Buddha says that's equanimity based on multiplicity, which he said is not quite as refined as the equanimity that comes from getting the mind into concentration. When the mind is in concentration, starting with the fourth John and going up, that's equanimity based on unity. That's a lot more solid. But in order to get there, as I said, you have to work at getting there. You have to work with your breath, you have to work with your perceptions and feelings to get the mind to settle down. Then finally, he says, there's something that's called non-fashioning, in which you realize that you've been, even with the equanimity, there is a sense of clinging to the equanimity. There's a sense of holding on, there is a sense of identity that's built up around the equanimity. Um, And this can take many, many forms, so the grossest form is one where you've probably seen this if you've ever been on a jhana retreat. Someone comes up after you after the second day and says, which jhana did you hit today? (laughs) And no matter how high your jhana is, theirs is going to be higher. (laughs) My jhana is better than your jhana. Um, The Buddha said, this is a sign of a person of no integrity. (laughs) So if anyone ever pulls that game with you, you you've got a line to go right back at them. saying that, that when you attain these states, if you think about, well, I've got this, and so-and-so doesn't have this, already you've lost what you've gained you know, by creating that sense of identity around it. That's one of the grossest ones. There are more subtle ones, though. The Buddha is talking at one point to Ananda, and he talks about getting the mind all the way up to the state of neither perception or not perception. That's way up there on the jhana ladder. And Ananda says, when someone is there, is that still clinging? And the Buddha says, yeah, they're still clinging there. And Ananda says, yeah, that sounds like the highest form of clinging. And the Buddha says, yes, that is the highest form of clinging. (laughs) And then Ananda says, well, how can you hit that without clinging? And he says, you have to look at how you're reacting to the equanimity right there. If you are feeding on the equanimity, if you're relishing it, you're still clinging. You have to see that equanimity in itself is a fabricated state, and that your attachment to it is also fabrication. It's only then that you can get beyond it. So equanimity is not nirvana, okay? I understand that somebody was sitting here a year or two ago saying that equanimity was nirvana. Please erase that from your memory. (laughs) It's not true. The Buddha actually says, when release happens, there are three appropriate reactions to the realization of your release. Imagine yourself, you finally gained the end of suffering. How are you going to react emotionally? He said, joy will happen and then it will pass away. Rapture will happen, and then it will pass away. Equanimity will happen, and it will pass away. Okay, these three things are responses to release, but they're not the release in and of itself. There's something higher than that. We're talking about total freedom. Now in this total freedom, the Buddha said, okay, nirvana is the highest happiness. There's no place where he says it's the highest equanimity. It's the highest happiness. But the happiness here is not a feeling. There was one time when the Buddha himself addressed this issue. If someone says, hey, wait a minute, we're told that all feelings are impermanent or inconstant, and yet the Buddha is talking about nirvana as the highest happiness, isn't there some sort of, or the highest pleasure, isn't there some contradiction here? And the Buddha says that not all kinds of pleasure or happiness are, are feelings. Not all of them are aggregates. There's something that lies outside the aggregate, which is a happiness, that is not conditioned in any way. That's actually where we're aiming. So what this means altogether is that equanimity is overrated. Um, That can be the title for the talk, okay? (laughs) Everyone puts such dull titles on my talks up here. (laughs) So, On the one hand, it's not your only tool as you practice. There are times when it is good to just sit and watch things with equanimity see how they come, see how they go, so you can understand them. It's like you know, learning Russian or learning Chinese, so you can figure out the enemy. You, know, you, you watch them and you study them for a while. Um, but there are other times when you actually do have to try to figure out what you are doing to shape your experience right now in an unskillful way, and how you can shape it in a new way. This is where the Buddha's analysis of this process of shaping or fabrication into three areas is really useful first thing you ask yourself, how am I breathing? Is my breathing adding to my suffering right now? You look in the Buddha's description of dependent core rising, which is his analysis of how suffering and stress happen. First thing, you start with ignorance and then you go to fabrication. The first fabrication they list is bodily fabrication. In other words, if you breathe ignorantly, that right in, in itself is going to cause suffering. So here's something that's immediately available to you. Start breathing with more understanding, breathing with more comprehension of what you're doing, seeing how that, will change the situation, how you're feeling about the situation in the present moment. Then look at how you're talking to yourself about the situation. Can you change the dialogue? Can you raise new questions that you might not have thought of before? And then finally, look at the mental images, the perceptions you're holding in mind about this particular situation, how you can perceive it differently. If you perceive yourself simply as a victim, that's going to create certain limitations on how you can respond. Or if you perceive yourself as a more proactive agent, you've got the opportunity to change this. Where can I change this? Um, The element of control here, we know that we don't have total control over things, and the word control freak is um, widespread for a good reason. But you find that there are elements that you can change, things that you do have under your control that you can change. You look for that. Learn how to ask that question to yourself and perceive the situation in a new way. And you'll find that you cut through a lot of causes of suffering that you couldn't have cut through simply by being a and accepting. So that's the talk for today. I was wondering if there are any questions. We've got a few minutes. How long does the Q&A go? Uh, quarter, to 10. Quarter, to 10. quarter to ten. Okay. We're <coughs> yes. You're, you're traveling mic. <coughs> um. So on a practical level, we, and it seems like a, the trend of your talk is a little bit saying, uh, it's, all, it's our job to, um, to sort of like just really stay close, let go, let go, let go, and, and to, to just go around the situation. But how, how do we know when a feeling is significant? And and that it's like the outside, we need to go outside and change. Or what are some of the signs or rules of thumb you have for that instead of like, oh, my perspective needs to change? Okay, well, the question is, you've got two different questions. And again, this is not a job. (laughs) This This is an opportunity for you to look at how you're causing yourself suffering. Now, you may decide, yes, I do have to change the situation outside. But in the meantime, I've got to learn how not to suffer so much from it Sometimes we feel that we won't be motivated to change unless we suffer enough. And that's not a really useful way of approaching change. You want to say, wait a minute, I can see that this situation is unfair, something's got to be done. But in the meantime, how am I going to maintain my inner strength and well-being so I can address it the most effective way? So the first issue I would say here is, look at how much you're suffering from this, and when the mind calms down, then you can look at the situation outside and see what can be changed there. Question in the back. I've been feeling a lot of anxiety and worry lately, and I was wondering what instructions you would give me for my breathing. Breathing. Try to breathe deep down into your abdomen, and try to breathe in a way that feels soothing all the way down. And then once you got the abdomen and this the, so it's sort of the front of the torso comfortable, now think about breath energy coming in through your back. We talk about breath, it's not just air, because you're not going to pump air in the back of your neck. But you are going to notice that there's an energy, there's energy blockage there, usually, when there's a lot of anxiety. And so think of the breath coming in, going down the spine, going down the shoulders, to release some of that. And so the, even though the, the thoughts that would have given you anxiety might still be there in the mind, at least you're breathing in a way that's not augmenting them. Thank you. Question here? Thank you. Um, This is something different from what has been there in my mind, especially regarding the equanimity and other things. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm impressed uh, with the concept itself Mm -hmm. because it's been very challenging to me, you know, What's the point in just living, you know, if you just don't care about anything kind of. So I do have a lot of misconceptions, and, and you're way too fast for me to understand, not just you, the whole thing. Mm-hmm. So I want to know if there are any specific resources like c- you, you want re- me to refer to. Uh, I, I do want to spend time, s- spend some time and understand more, mm-hmm. uh, especially this particular topic. Okay, there's, um, I've given some Dharma talks on the topic. You can look at them on on the website called dhammatalks.org. Anything that has equanimity in the title. And and there's some um, transcribed Dharma talks in in the series called Meditations. And again, look for where there's equanimity in the title of the talk. There is a, um, there's a book called Wings to Awakening, which has a section on equanimity. Those are good places to start. Mm-hmm. In the hall, could you pass back? way back. <coughs> you. Could you say a little bit more about happiness, not as a feeling? What do you want to know about it? <laughs> well, it's a, a whole new concept for me of, um, you know, I know when I'm feeling happy mm-hmm. and I'd like, you know, at least a point um, of direction to where one can go beyond that. Okay, nirvana is the place where you go beyond that. Um, and it, basically it's the practice of getting the mind to settle down And you're you're going to be developing feelings of pleasure and equanimity as the mind settles down more. And then you start looking into that state of concentration and see if there's still any stress in there. And in the beginning, it's not going to seem like there's any stress at all. But as you get to know it better, you begin to see that the level of stress goes up and down. You say, okay, this still can't be the goal. I've got to find something better than this. And so you let go of whatever is causing that excess stress and just keep letting go as you discern movements of stress or... You know, sort of up and down variations in the level of stress, Try to notice, well, what am I doing that brought the stress level up? If I drop that, does the stress level go back down again? And this way you get used to more and more refined ways in which the mind creates stress for itself. Until finally you break through to the point where okay, you, you realize, okay, I stopped whatever it was that was causing stress, that's, that's done with. And what's left at that point, as the Buddha said, is a sense of sukha, the, the Pali word for happiness, pleasure, ease, well-being, but it's not going to be feeling because there's not going to be any variation. It's sort of outside of space and time. Oh, can I ask a corollary question to that? <clears throat> mm-hmm. Would you say that happiness is simply the absence of suffering, or is it a state in and of itself? To okay, for, in Nirvana, it would be both. Yeah. It would be both. It's the absence of suffering of any kind. And when you get to that refined a level, the word suffering is a little bit too strong. And that's why you like to use stress. Question here? A bit of a technical question. Um, the way I learned to practice jhana is to always focus the breath right at the entrance to the nostrils mm-hmm. and to keep it there. And the way you teach uh, breathing is much more uh, diffuse. Mm-hmm. So I wonder if your... Uh, you're just a different approach to practicing jhana, or if or how to re- reconcile the two? Do you have to reconcile them? <laughs> well, I don't know. Do I? I mean, because it's, I mean, to one, um, you eventually do want to get into a state of whole body awareness, regardless of how you're practicing jhana. I mean, the Buddha talks about this. Once there's a sense of ease and well-being, you let it suffuse throughout the body. And the image he gives is of a Back in those days when people would bathe, they didn't have soap, but they would have a bath powder and they would take water and make kind of a dough out of this bath powder ball. And in the same way that you would work water through bread dough, you work water through this, this dough. And so there's a conscious effort of getting that sense of ease to go through the whole body. And so you've got to be aware of the whole body while you're doing this. And so ideally, when, when the mind finally settles down, there is a sense that there's going to be one spot in the body where your focus is more intense than other parts, but the range of your awareness fills everything in the body. But if it, if it felt more natural to be in, the say, the heart chakra instead of at the nostrils, that would be okay? That's perfectly fine. Okay. Um, there's a question, there's one word in the Buddha's um, breath meditation instructions that says to breathe mukhang, or focus your meditation mukhang. And if you take the word apart literally, "barli" means around, and mukha means either mouth or face. Um, now the question is, do you want to take this word literally, or can be maybe it's idiomatic? It's like you know, suppose someone comes along when English is a dead language, and they read about you know someone pulling someone else's leg, you know? <laughs> <laughs> and say, "When I meditate, do I have to pull my leg?" Which you know. <laughs> So, so you can breathe anywhere you, you want. I mean, they, they, they also talk about when you're doing any kind of breath meditation that you establish your mindfulness body will mm-hmm. In a lot of cases, you're, they're actually talking about meditating on other topics. So why would you have to focus on your nose when you're meditating on death, say, or... reincarnation? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I understand that it's time to stop. So, one more question. Um, can you focus your breathing both throughout your whole body and, say, at the tip of your nostrils, simultaneously? Yes, or, or, or do you go back and forth? It's kind of a very quick going back and forth, but there comes a point where you feel it's all there at once. So you can practice going back and forth until it... Until closes. it settles and you've got both together. Thank you. It's unification, yeah. Okay, we've got to stop, I understand. So thank you for your... <laughs>